Hi, everyone. I'm Joseph Hogan, host of Common Ground, a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Each week, I talk with public intellectuals, political leaders, scholars, critics, and writers at large about American life, ideas, and identities. The point is to explore the cultural and political landscape shared by the left and right, to reveal the common ground on which progressives and conservatives can stand together. Our podcast isn't just political. We cover culture, literature, the arts, and the humanities. After all, finding common ground doesn't just mean shaking hands on matters of policy. Debates about history, philosophy, and culture matter too. So we're inaugurating our podcast with a talk that Michael Ignatieff, the former leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, recently gave at the Howenstein Center. Ignatieff critiques our current political climate from his perspective as an advocate of moderation and centrism, a plague on both houses, Democratic and Republican, he exclaims. In Ignatieff's view, both sides have allowed our political process to become crippled by polarization and hyper-partisan spectacle. Keep listening to hear Ignatieff's talk, one that, in many ways, summarizes what the Howenstein Center and the Common Ground podcast are about. Thanks for listening. This is Common Ground. Politicians, the worst of them, have ceased to represent citizens. They distort and exaggerate civic division, and the consequences have brought America close to standstill. That's Michael Ignatieff the Edward R. Murrow professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and former leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. Ignatieff has a strong critique of American politics today. He condemns our politicians' tendency towards spectacle over substance, especially this year in 2016, and accuses pundits on the left and right of exaggerating and thus exacerbating our differences. As a remedy, Ignatieff prescribes a form of principled centrism, He revives and slightly revises the old idea of the vital center, defining it now as the place where the left and right clash and collide, but sometimes do come together. We hope you enjoy this episode of Common Ground. The search for common ground is just incredibly important. It's incredibly difficult. It's too important to leave to the politicians. Very little should be left to politicians, in my view. It should be left to us as citizens. I'm not a citizen of your country, but I love your country, and this country has been very good to me. And I'm delighted to take part uh, in this effort to try and bridge a gap of polarization and antagonism that has a lot of American citizens of both sides of the political aisle worried, worried, rightly worried about the future of this wonderful republic. So I'm happy to be part of that. Uh, I do bridge the gap between the professoriate and uh, the killing floor of politics. I've done both. And uh, as you may have heard, my political career as the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada was nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, I faced a national electorate three times in six years. Uh, Won two national elections, but I lost the third. And losing is not the nicest way to learn what politics is all about. But as Scott Fitzgerald memorably said, there is a certain authority in failure. 
And I want to use that authority to talk to you tonight about the humanities and politics and what a professor learned about bridging the partisan divide. The key thing I want to say tonight is that despite my defeat, I'm convinced that the votes that count most for a better politics in your country and mine remain in the center. But partisans are going to have to change our tone and our message if we want to recapture the common ground. Though it pains me to admit it, the conservative politician who beat me, Stephen Harper, did so by grabbing the center ground out from under my feet. He knew that the country, Canada, is a small c conservative place, but our people have no time for sectarians. So he refused, this is I think a message for American conservatives, he refused to allow evangelicals, anti-abortion ideologues, or anti-gay rights activists to capture his party's agenda. He essentially conceded that conservatives had lost the culture wars of the 80s and 90s. And then he changed the subject from the culture wars to the economy and earned support towards the center by presenting a fiscally conservative small government agenda that was very reassuring to voters swept up in the 2008 financial crisis. So in doing so, he seized the center and moved it three degrees to the right. And last October, my successor, Mr. Trudeau, seized the center and has moved it three degrees to the left. But my point is the center still holds and it's still there and it's still where the action is in politics. I think the conservative success in uh, the last decade in Canada has something to teach American conservatives, though I have never seen an occasion in which an American learned anything from Canada. So I'm just saying, do you know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just talking, I'm doing my best here. I don't expect you to take lessons from up north. You take it for granted, that's fine with me, but I, I do feel there are things we can tell you. Anyway, one lesson uh, from the conservative success up north is don't let sectarians define conservatism. Don't make Mr. Goldwater's mistake, which is to think that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. It is a vice. Sectarianism is a vice, and sectarianism will keep conservatives from achieving power. But there's a message here also on the other side for progressive partisans. Almost the most essential thing I learned in politics is that voters are not partisans. You've got to distinguish between partisans and voters. Voters are deeply unlike partisans. Uh, to use uh, the distinction made famous by the German sociologist Max Weber, partisans believe in the ethics of ultimate ends, while voters believe in the ethics of responsibility. That is to say, partisans put convictions ahead of results and voters tend to put results ahead of convictions. So the, one of the rules of politics that was kind of branded into me uh, is it's extremely important for political leaders to know the difference between a partisan and a voter, to understand the difference between these two audiences. And rule number two follows quickly after that, which is don't make a promise to a partisan that you can't also make simultaneously to a voter. Uh, there's a world of difference 
between winning primaries and winning elections, between lighting up your base and lighting up an electorate. You can win nominations by running towards your base, but if it's power you're after, you better run towards the center because that's where the votes are. Now, this used to be the conventional wisdom, but it isn't the conventional wisdom now. It has become a cliche that the median voter, that voter, moderate voter in the middle, no longer exists because the electorate has fractured. And it has now become a kind of poetic cliche that the center cannot hold and that the poet William Butler Yeats was right when he said that the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Yeats was a wonderful poet, but in this I think he was wrong, because I think the center still holds. So how do we get back to a political system where progressives and conservatives both compete for the vital center? It's not gonna work if you try and put conservative and progressive agenda items in some kind of political vegematic press button and mix it all up together. Uh, that's not going to work. It's not going to convince voters. Policy, in fact, does not define, I think, where the center exists. And policy wonks, although professors wish this were true, policy wonks do not rule in the real world of electoral appeal. Nor is moderation in language and tone sufficient to get to the center because a polite and civil sectarian is still a sectarian. What defines the center, I think, is a broad belief that politics is essentially about two things, finding compromises between antagonistic interests, and secondly, keeping the show, by which I mean the republic, on the road. It's a procedural rather than a substantive middle ground. People can disagree vehemently on specific issues of policy, but still occupy the same common belief about what politics actually is. And I learned this from voters. The voters I knew and tried to convince when I was in Canada, and I, there must be some of them down here, the voters I know like conviction, but they don't like ideology. And you have to understand when you're a politician that you can feed red meat to your party workers and your political base. But if you feed red meat to voters, it turns them off. And it turns them off because they feel you're speaking at them and not to them. Uh, and they know the difference, you know the difference, between someone who has convictions and someone who just has an ideology. And the other thing is that voters understand politics very differently from politicians. Having been a politician very briefly, uh, I know that they're lifers. It's their career, it's their life, and when your life is on the line, you'll do anything uh, to stay close to the trough. But voters think differently about politics. It's not their life, and they don't regard politics basically as entertainment. <laughs> a lot of more interesting ways to entertain yourself than turning into CNN. What voters understand is that politics is the arena where they go every election cycle to select a representative so they can get on and do things that are more important in their own lives. Now, voters understand their representative duties. 
and they're prepared to cut the representative they choose some slack, but they expect representatives to earn their keep and not play stupid games. And voters, you, have limited patience with political game playing, especially when the game is played with your money. So when evaluating a politician, voters are looking for someone who takes them seriously, who talks to them in a language they understand, someone who knows that real problems are complex, and who also knows that a representative's role, a politician's role, is to craft some halfway, halfway decent, better than nothing, reasonable solutions. And this non-ideological, pragmatic, problem-solving realism has been shoved aside in the last couple of decades by politics as spectacle, politics as reality TV, politics as open warfare. But I sense that voters, and I mean you, are beginning to push back. You're tired of politics as reality TV. And the reason you're tired of politics as reality TV, it has a kind of low comic value from time to time, but it's a sorry show because you sense that it's not about you at all. Politics has become a spectacle of personal aggrandizement by the political class, a, a, a political class that does not hesitate to cultivate sectarian hatred. And neither of those ideas has any fundamental relation or interest for you as citizens. You want someone who knows that politics is a job that's essentially about you and your interest. And this common sense of politics, this common sense view of politics, I think remains alive and well in our electorates. I've heard it, I've heard this line spoken to me by people who are never going to vote for me, but understood politics exactly the way I did. And I've heard it from progressives to the left of me who never vote for me, but they understood that this practical, realist conception of politics was what they wanted politics to be. And I'd argue that both sides of the political divide in the United States have departed from this common understanding of what politics is about and in the process abandon the common ground on which the future of politics depends. Both progressives and conservatives are turning voters off. Both sides are too shrill. Both sides are too knowing, too certain, uh, and they do a lot of braying at you. Both play games, and each has lessons to learn. Now, I've just done a plague on both your houses, and in the interest of truth in argument. Uh, those of you who show up tomorrow night will, uh, I hope, talk to or listen to E.J. Dion. E.J. Dion is a wonderful uh, commentator on American life, and he would disagree vehemently with what I just said. He and other theorists of this problem of partisanship would argue that sectarianism is more a problem of the right than of the left, and that Republicans are more to blame for the partisan divide than Democrats. And there may be some truth to this, but I worry about the complacency in this argument, because it's basically a very common idea among progressives that we don't have to change, but they do. And I, I don't think that's being sufficiently honest about this problem. I think we need, I count myself as a kind of progressive, we need to be honest with ourselves. 
I mean, some progressives need to learn, it's pretty obvious, that a government program isn't necessarily the right solution to every problem. The progressive heritage, and I revere it from, from Roosevelt right through the Lyndon Johnson, didn't always produce good government. Sometimes it just produced big, expensive, clumsy, and arrogant government. And progressives need to understand that their own tradition delivered some ambiguous results. I think the other thing is that progressives need to listen more carefully to voters because in their own lives, voters know that for some problems, there just aren't any good solutions. There is such a thing as tragedy in human life. There is such a thing as the irremediable. And so voters' lives have taught them that, let's be a little suspicious of solution peddlers, bright-eyed believers that there's nothing that evidence-based good public policy can't fix. And that is illusion, by the way, that is very current in the public policy school where I have the honor to teach. Voters, I know, are alive to the fact that the best laid plans of mice and man oft go, go awry. Progressives, I think, need to think about the fact that they are too enamored of their own good intentions, too little attentive to the frequent fact that good intentions sometimes play out in bad consequence. Equally, on the other side, I think conservatives have some things to learn before they can compete for the middle ground. I think, it's what a progressive would say, I know, but let, hear me out, that conservatives take their suspicion of government too far. In the Reagan revolution, Reagan captured, I think, voters' disillusion with liberal good intentions. But the conservative agenda that developed in the 60s and 70s worked better as a critique of government than a prescription for governing. Uh, the voters, and, and I think what conservatism has missed is something I see in voters when I knocked on doors and tried to convince them to vote for me. The thing I got over and over again, whether they voted for me or not, whether they were on my side or not, is they knew one thing about their lives, which was the deep interdependence of private welfare and public goods. And by public goods, I mean they know they needed schools, public transport, libraries, colleges, universities like this one, Medicare, Social Security. They knew that their standard of living, their private quality of life, depended crucially on semi-decent public provision. And, and I think that's a thing that we've lost sight of, that shared public goods are literally the ground under all our feet. And by that, I don't mean anything abstract. I mean schools that actually teach our kids something. You know, roads that aren't too full of potholes and get us to work. You know, hospitals that kind of try to look after us when we get sick. Social insurance that helps us have a dignified retirement. And a national defense to keep us safe. And I just do believe, maybe this is naive, but it is my belief that progressives and conservatives could begin to align around what that agenda of basic minimum public goods provision has to be. 
under any administration, under any government of left or right. And this will not end political debate, but it will focus it where political debate ought to be, which is how do we pay for the goods? How do we manage them? How do we make sure they're fairly de developed, extended to all? And how do we ensure, and this is a conservative concern that needs to be listened to, how do we ensure that public goods don't undermine private initiative? The strong suit of conservatism in moral terms, if you're sitting where I am as a liberal progressive, the strong suit of conservatism has always been its insistence that if you have to have government at all, its function should be to enhance, not diminish, individual responsibility. And when public goods do confiscate responsibility, when they create dependency, then the incentives need to be recalibrated so citizens do shoulder the jobs that only citizens can do, which is to keep their families afloat, teach their kids good values, uh, look after their aging parents, the things that the, the responsibilities that are at the core of, uh, of our lives as human beings. And when, but when we get this balance right uh, between private initiative and public goods, then families can take on their responsibility safe in the knowledge that they're not alone. Because if the conservative insight is that each of us is responsible for our fate, the progressive insight has always been that no one in a decent society should have to face our fate entirely alone. And that, this is where there's a moment where we can begin to speak to each other. Put these together and we can maintain the public goods on which we all depend and then work together so we shoulder the responsibilities that we must, each of us, take on our own backs. So my claim is rebuilding the common ground between progressive and conservatives depends on both sides understanding the shared public goods that are the ground under all our feet. So that's one thing I want to say to you. The other thing I want to say to you is is there also the mystic chords of memory. We are fellow citizens. We're heirs of the same history. We're loyal to the same country. And it's foolish to, pay, to politicize patriotism. Nobody has a monopoly on it. When someone questions someone's patriotism, they usually don't know what the damn word means. And voters don't like uh, politicians who question the patriotism and civic commitment of other competitors. Playing politics is the phrase that voters use uh, against those who drag issues of ultimate loyalty into the political arena. But I don't want to, I don't want to explore that so much as raise a still more difficult issue. Because one of the most fundamental issues in democratic politics, and we never think about it much, is what is a political question? And what shouldn't be a political question? Right? And this is a hugely difficult issue to think about clearly. Uh, in many other countries outside the United States, countries which have more con confidence in judges and civil servants and bureaucrats, lots of issues are actually taken out of the political arena. They're taken out of political competition. Let me give you some examples. Judicial appointments, campaign finance rules, the private lives of politicians even, even the delineation of electoral districts. In other democracies, 
you don't allow politicians to uh, gerrymander their own electoral districts. It just They take that out of politics. And so one of the questions we have to think about is what should be in politics and what has to be taken out of politics for the sake of politics itself, right? That's the kind of issue I'm, I'm thinking about. Now, I don't expect America to follow uh, the path of other nations, not just Canada, but other nations. Because one of the things that outsiders like me admire about you is that you're the least elitist democracy in the world. That is, you specifically do not like it when elites get together and decide we're not going to make that a political question. You don't like that. You resent that and you want the people to decide. And that's why everything then becomes a political question. But I think there's an issue here that Americans, we all need to think about, which is that democracies can become dysfunctional when both sides turn everything into a political question. It used to be a conservative instinct, by the way, that the less you politicize, the better. The conservative genius was that keep politics in a bounded space. Don't politicize everything. Leave a private space safe from the interference of politics. And there's a deep insight in that conservative idea. But now that uh, conservatism in American, America has become so sectarian, there's nothing that's not political. When everything is political, when nothing can be safely left to reliable public servants, regulatory agencies, and the courts, when everything has to be decided politically, that usually results in deadlock. And this is a paradox about what is a political, when everything is a political question, that invites a deadlock. And deadlock is frustrating to citizens because you know that the common ground of politics is actually wider and more capacious than most politicians think. And so, and let me make another assumption clear here. To assert that there is common ground and more common ground in politics is to take a position in the debate about why there's such polarization in the first place. There's the top-down view that polarization is basically the fault of the political class. And the bottom-up view is that the polarization simply reflects the actual divisions in American society at large. Now, I don't want to deny that there are deep divisions in American society, divisions of race, divisions of class, divisions of religion, divisions of region. I'm with James Madison, wonderful essay on factions in the Federalist Papers. I take it for granted, as Madison did, that voters' interests are divided and antagonistic. But whereas politicians have an interest in maximizing and exacerbating those divisions, I think voters have a competing interest, which is to ensure that the show goes on. And by show, I mean the republic. In the medium term, voters are even prepared to sacrifice getting their own interests served in the interest of making sure that the show goes on. And so I take the view that polarization is not so much a reflection from the bottom up of America's divisions as a deformation from the top down by the political class. It's a deformation of the political class's own representative function. Politicians, the worst of them, have ceased to represent citizens. 
They distort and exaggerate civic division, and the consequences have brought America close to standstill. I'm going to take a recent example, a controversial one. You may not agree with my read on it, but that's what we're trying to do, talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, it may be in the recent example is the you know, confirmation battle over the next Supreme Court justice. It may be in the Senate majority leader's interest to shut down the constitutional process of advise and consent. But it's not clear to me that that's in the voters' interest. And here I would persist, just so you understand where I'm actually coming from, I'd persist in my plague on both houses analysis. The Republicans may have taken brinksmanship to a wholly new level of obstruction, but they're not wrong when they claim that this is payback time for nomination fights past, Thomas, Bork, etc. And, and this lays bare one of the deepest rules of politics and life. What goes around comes around. And I think that when the dust settles on this nomination battle after the November election, both sides, Republican and Democrat alike, may come to reflect that comity, comity serves their interests better than confrontation. I want to just make two final points. Comity is more than good manners. It is the behavioral precondition for the institutional stability of this republic. And citizens understand this instinctively. They have an enduring interest in civil peace. Politicians ought to have such an interest, but sectarian and partisan incentives lead them to brush past it. Now, when I call comedy just getting along, making the system work, when I call that an interest in peace, you may think I'm being a little inflated, but I mean it seriously. Making sure our political representatives share an interest in making our institutions work is important precisely because our interests are antagonistic. Madison was right. Uh, we can't fool around here. This is a divided country. Comedy is essential to keeping the show on the road. The American Civil War is never over, and the divisions of race and region that exploded into violence still haunt this republic. What the US has managed just has been to move these divisions and hatreds from the realm of war to the realm of politics. And the reason I care about politics, the reason this isn't an academic subject to me, the reason I put my name on a ballot even though I lost, is that the thing about politics, the thing that we, reason we care about it, is that it is the only reliable alternative we have ever devised to war. And this should lead us, by the way, to correct certain metaphors that have crept into our language about politics. When we talk about politics as war, when we staff our campaigns with war rooms, I had a war room, when we carry the fight to the enemy, when we, quote, take no prisoners in debate, when we allow the metaphors of combat to take over our conception of politics, because language has this strange power over our imaginations. It can take us over. And we forget something simple. We forget that politics is not war by other means. It's the alternative to war. It's the alternative that allows us to fight out our disputes without burning down the house we live in together. <laughs>
Related to this distinction between politics and war is another distinction between the enemy and the adversary. An enemy wants to destroy you. An adversary merely wants to beat you. An enemy threatens everything you hold dear. An adversary merely wants to win. You cannot compromise with an enemy, but an adversary today may be your ally tomorrow. And so both sides, progressives and conservatives, need to understand that there is a distinction between a politics of adversaries and a politics of enemies, and we need to stay a thousand miles away from a politics of enemies. Because the point is simple. There are no enemies. There are no enemies in the Democratic House. Yes, we face enemies. There are enemies out there. Terrorists within, uh, hostile armies without. But within the House, anyone who lives at peace with us is an adversary, not an enemy. And democratic antagonism, necessary as it always is, is a debate between adversaries, never a war between enemies. And this is more, finally, than a simple plea for civility, for moderation, for niceness, for good manners. It's a call for us to understand in our bones that civil peace and the semi-adequate functioning of our institutions require us to teach and teach our children, teach ourselves, to treat our opponents as adversaries, never as enemies. And from this follows a final assumption that's kind of hopeful. An enemy can't be reasoned with, but an adversary can. We need a politics in which we hold on to the truth that we all understand in our private life. Each of us is persuadable. Each of us changes our minds. I change my mind all the time. We need a politics in which a conservative looks at a progressive and thinks, that poor soul just needs a little persuading. And a progressive thinks exactly the same thing. He'll come over, he'll come over. He's, he's, he'll see the light, he'll see the error of his ways. And that sense of persuadability is, lies behind this distinction between an enemy and an adversary. And if we had that sense of persuadability, if we look at each other as adversaries, never as enemies, we might understand, finally, as we often do in our private lives, none of us has a monopoly on either wisdom or folly. Thanks for your attention. That was Michael Ignatieff speaking at Progressive Conservative a summit held by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University in partnership with the Progressive Women's Alliance of West Michigan and the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. The conference was held with support from the Kate and Richard Walters Foundation. We've kicked off our podcast with Michael Ignatius' talk because it serves as an excellent introduction to what we are about at the Howenstein Center. We thank Professor Ignatius for participating in our summit. For more information about him, visit michaelignatieff.ca. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Gleaves Whitney is director of the center and producer of this podcast. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. 
For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground. <laughs>